Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Paul Rickard, filling in for Peter Switzer. On tonight's program, we start with Marcus Bogdan, the Chief Investment Officer from Blackmore Capital. He shares a bit of a wrap up on reporting season, what were some highlights, what were some, were some key themes, but also looks at a couple of stocks he really, really likes. One in particular is toll road operator Atlas Arteria. We switch our mind next to the property with uh, Eleanor Cray. She's a senior economist from PropTrack, part of the REA group. And she says the property market is actually looking a lot better than some of the scary headlines you might see in either the ABC or, or Nine newspapers. In particular, when looking at rental vacancies and times properties are on, uh, on market to rent, they're actually at, at all, almost all-time record lows, which suggests that the property market still could be a pretty good place for investors and may not be in quite the crisis that some people want to make it out to be. And finally, we switch our, our minds to the US dollar with Michael Knox, the chief economist at, uh, at Morgan's. US dollar's been tearing away. In fact, that's been one of the big investment themes over the last four or five months at record highs, or sorry, close to multi-decade multi highs against both the euro uh, and the pound. What does that mean for investing offshore? What does it mean for the Australian dollar? Uh, certainly has a, the strength of the US dollar is having a big impact on commodity prices and a big impact and will have a big impact on where you might want to put your money. We'll get Michael Knox's thoughts about where the US dollar is heading and what it means for the poor Aussie dollar. Now let's look at the local stock market with Marcus Bogdan, the Chief Investment Officer from Blackmore Capital. Joining me first up is Marcus Bogdan. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Blackmore Capital. Marcus, welcome to the program. Morning, Paul. Well, I want to come back to reporting season and a couple of stocks that you'd like subsequently coming out of that. But just to sort of, as we've seen the market the last week and a half or so, concerns about the, certainly the coming of view of the US in terms of maybe the Fed will go three quarter percent, be a lot tougher on inflation than perhaps some had, uh, had hoped for maybe a few noises from the Reserve Bank locally. What's your view as to sort of how the market is uh, positioned at the moment? Well, I think the, the reporting uh, season, uh, both here and the US, uh, was significant in suggesting that earnings are still holding up uh, incredibly well, despite having uh, the impact of higher inflation and higher interest rates. The trajectory going forward is certainly that we're going to expect to see further increases in interest rates. And I think that that will put continued pressure on equity, on equity markets, particularly in the next couple of months. And I think the markets will only really settle down once we see the sort of the peak level of interest rates and the peak level of inflation. Uh, and certainly on the interest rates side of things, uh, we're still uh, not there yet. So next week in the US, we have their, I think it's their August uh, CPI. Uh, and again, that probably should show a slight reduction. Is that a pretty important number as far as the market is concerned? Well, yeah, the, the last um, CPI reading was slightly better than expected, but mindful of the fact that um, inflation still remains incredibly elevated. 
But what is encouraging and what we've seen when we've been speaking to companies individually uh, is that, that some of the pressures that we've seen in terms of supply chain, uh, labour absenteeism, those sorts of things are starting to improve. And I think that that is significant going forward because that has been, uh, and also energy prices have certainly looked a little bit better in, 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 the, shorter, in the shorter term. So continue to see pressure there on, on inflation, but I think the trajectory now is for, um, for some improvement from, from these levels. Okay, reporting season is, is done and dusted, so let's not go through necessarily some of the stocks, but any sort of general themes that came out of uh, reporting season for you? Well, sales revenue was certainly strong uh, and it really reflected that companies were very successful in being able to pass on high, higher costs uh, through, through, through price increases. Uh, so that was certainly encouraging there. Uh, earnings per share growth, for um, 2022 was still incredibly robust at around 20%. Now that was helped uh, certainly earlier on by the resources sector, uh, but the industrial sector also did well and broadly the financials, the banks, CBA and the insurers uh, were, were beneficiaries of those higher rates. So the net result was that demand uh, and the underlying drivers of the economy, particularly in Australia, remain sound. Um, looking forward, though, looking into um, 2023, we do see quite a significant moderation, though, in earnings growth. And, and more recently, you have seen uh, quite significant downgrades to some of uh, the core commodity prices, particularly uh, iron ore in copper. But when we look at industrial profit, profit growth, uh, it's still relatively sound. And that's because I guess the industrials have actually been able to pass on their, uh, their, their higher prices. It sort of seems to be companies seem to be fairly successful at doing that. Um, so a cautionary note, I guess, on resources. Let's go to a company that, that's classified as industrial. It, it doesn't actually make anything. In fact, it's a toll road operator, not transurban, but uh, yes. a company you've been adding to. That's Atlas Arteria. Maybe you could just explain before we go to the stock uh, where the toll roads uh, it has, where it operates. Um, so Atlas uh, Arteria uh, is is a, is a, um, a toll toll road um, with with emphasis their largest market. In fact, it's one of the large uh, longest toll roads in the world, which is in France. Uh, that's their key that's their key asset. Uh, but they also have uh, smaller assets both in Germany and in and in the US. Uh, but they delivered a strong result. Uh, traffic numbers, particularly uh, on their largest asset, were up 22%. Uh, and both revenue and earnings are now above pre-COVID levels. Uh, and that allowed um, the distribution growth of around 11, 11%. And that provides our investors uh, with a distribution yield of around 5%. The other interesting thing that has happened with Atlas Arteria is that one of the largest global infrastructure funds, IMF, uh, has built up quite a substantial stake in that in that company, uh, and they've also tried to engage that company in in terms of incre in increasing uh, their shareholding in it, and so that has again been supportive of the share price. Uh, but we like 
the recovery. Uh, uh, we believe that the, the balance sheet is conservative uh, and we like the growth that we're seeing in the underlying distribution. And I guess uh, we know there's been a bit, a bit of a shortage of infrastructure shocks. How do you uh, evaluate uh, Atlas Arterias say, versus Transurban, which I think pretty well every investor is, is familiar with, and uh, how do you compare, you know, put one against the other? Um, well, a couple of key, key metrics. Um, one of the key metrics I think is absolutely um, significant at the moment is the, the rising cost of, cost of debt. And so balance sheet strength or gearing levels are particularly important. Uh, our preference is that we prefer the lower geared um, entity, and that is Atlas uh, Arteria over tra Transurban. Uh, and the other significant point is in, in a higher inflationary environment uh, is understanding that the CPI escalation clauses in the contracts are, and that's something which is uh, evident both in Transurban and at Atlas, uh, but we do prefer uh, that, that French toll road at, at, at the present moment, uh, and the distribution yield is slightly higher as well. Okay. Let's go to another company that uh, reported pretty well. People would be familiar with, of course, is West Farmers, and about two thirds of the earnings are coming out of uh, Bunnings. So it's uh, it's a Bunnings plus group, I guess, these days. Market sort of been, yeah. in, you know, hasn't done a lot on the share price. I'm just wondering what's your sort of feeling about West Farmers and uh, whether this area represents uh, good value. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The market has been cautious uh, on West, West Farmers, particularly Bunnings. I mean, that group um, and, and Officeworks uh, were key beneficiaries of, of COVID and they had a significant uh, uh, impact on, uh, positive impact on, on sales and earnings through that period of time. You know, those issues are now starting to abate and I think there are broader concerns around the housing market and what that particularly would do to uh, to Bunnings. But if you look at Bunnings throughout its history, uh, it has been very consistent in both sales and earnings growth uh, for really two, two decades and actually sailed through very well through the global financial crisis. Mm. Um, so we like the underlying franchise, we like the pivot that we're seeing in Bunnings to towards the more commercial sectors as well. So it's broad, broadening out their, their customer base. Uh, and then we're starting to see the first signs of a recovery in the Kmart and Target group. And the other, uh, other division, uh, which generally doesn't get much coverage is the energy and chemicals business. And that has obviously been a, a key beneficiary of, of, uh, of, high, of uh, higher commodity prices, particularly in energy in, in chemicals. Uh, they've got a new division, which is in, in healthcare and, and wellness, um, you know, acquiring a, a, pharma, um, a pharmacy group there. Um, we have to wait and see uh, how that how that develops. But again, it's in an essential industry uh, and West Farmers have got a history of being very good custodians of, of assets. Yeah, I mean, there are one of the uh, few few conglomerates that are still listed on the market. There's also that pivot, of course, into with lithium, with uh, I think it was Kibben Resources they picked up. Do you think, mm -hmm. though, that, I mean, with Bunnings, though, is still so, so, so much part of the group, do you think that uh, 
West farmers can make the, the pivot into the things into these other areas successfully? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the core drivers of West Farmers for the foreseeable future will be the success of Bunnings, given the contribution to earnings is so significant. Um, notwithstanding that, it is important that, that they build on their on their portfolio and particularly where they see sort of long term strategic growth and whether it's in chemicals, energy, lithium, or in, in healthcare, and whilst they make a much smaller contribution uh, today, um, I think going forward um, that will be far more meaningful. And, and they do need to continue mm -hmm. to add on and, and have you know, good growth projects. And what about as a, you know as dividends and so forth? I mean, um, you know, you hold West Farmers. There's something you're adding to at the moment. Just sort of give me a sense on uh, on sort of uh, expectation versus current share price. Well, I think if we look at more broadly, we would classify um, uh, West Farmers as a consumer staple stocks. Um, when they're all, whether we look at um, Woolworths, Coles, Endeavour or, or West Farmers, uh, they're all trading on price earnings multiples above 20, 20 times. So there's not outstanding value there, it's fair value, but what we do like about each of those groups is the resilience of their earnings, particularly yep. when we're going into a period of, of, of potentially um, higher cost of living, high, in a higher interest rate environment that uh, we want to be uh, pivoted towards those more defensive types of, of businesses. Well, Marcus, uh, thank you for those insights. That's uh, Marcus Bogdan, the Chief Investment Officer with Blackmore Capital. Some of the data out recently suggests that the housing market looks pretty tough, but there's other data that says that the uh, falls we've seen in the market are actually a lot less and perhaps the market's showing some underlying strength, particularly when it comes to the rental market and rental vacancies. Joining me now to discuss is Eleanor Cray. She's a senior, senior economist uh, with PropTrack. That's part of the REA group. Eleanor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, in your research, I think you've looked at particularly at the rental market and uh, things like time on market. Um, the rental market looks really strong. Certainly finding a rental property at the moment is incredibly tough for would-be tenants. Uh, we've seen that the total supply of properties available for rent has continued to trend lower from pre-pandemic levels. And actually on a national basis, the total supply of properties available for rent on realestate.com.au is down more than 30% from pre-pandemic levels. Now that means that there's a situation of really tight supply in the rental market at the mm -hmm. moment. And that tight supply is being felt pretty much Australia wide. That means it's incredibly hard for, for would-be tenants to actually find a rental property at the moment that is one vacant and two in budget because at the same time we've seen that demand to rent is up and that's particularly so in the capital cities so as the international borders have reopened migration has resumed international students are back in action but also as cities have returned to life as we resume the post-pandemic normality demand to rent is up and we are seeing that that's creating an incredibly tight rental market in terms of that reduced supply of properties available to rent 
and the increased demand that we're seeing to rent and that is in uh, that is creating upward pressures on rental prices and actually at a national level we've seen that year-on-year -year rental prices have increased eight uh, percent on an Australia-wide, and that's even more in some of the capital cities and, and regional areas. And if you break that down even further mm -hmm. and go to some of the smaller geographical levels, there's some suburbs that are seeing uh, rental price increases that are north of 20% over the last year. So just go back to why um, there is so such strong demand. I, mean, I know borders are reopened, but we keep hearing stories that people can't get visas, and I guess there's been some return of international uh, students and others, but your data actually compares pre-pandemic when we had the borders wholly open, we had a whole lot of students, we had a whole lot of uh, other people with, 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 uh, with properties and, uh, and a very strong mar and a market. And you're saying it's tighter now than it was back in, say, uh, pre-pandemic in February of 2020. So just what are some of the other factors that are driving that demand to cause, uh, to cause that sort of time on market and that spike in, 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 in rental returns? Certainly. So we've seen that that situation of, of tight supply um, and increased demand to rent uh, is uh, seeing properties renting out incredibly quickly. So at a national level, rental days on site hit a record low 19 days in July. Uh, in Brisbane, that was actually even quicker. So a record low 15 days in Brisbane in July. So certainly an indicator that the rental market is incredibly tight. Um, and it is namely that factor of tight supply that is really driving this competition in the rental market at the moment. Uh, so so one of the factors that we've seen there is that um, we've we've actually seen a lot of investors selling out throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so we have seen that investor activity has picked up off COVID lows, um, but certainly that hasn't provided a material increase to the long to the supply of uh, the long term pool of available rentals. Uh, we've also seen that I guess as the borders have reopened and travel has resumed. Uh, that there's a potential impact whereby investors pull properties out of the long-term rental pool towards the short-term rental pool via, um, via platforms like Airbnb and yeah. the like. Um, and there's also an impact, I guess, with the fact that we're seeing more people engaging in hybrid work arrangements, work from home arrangements, they need a little bit more space, for workplace flexibility, um, potentially room for a home office and the like. Uh, so less household sharing in that respect, and also an impact via um, household separation and the like. Uh, so that's uh, all those factors in combination are creating what we see at the moment in terms of a very tight rental market where those pressures don't look likely to ease anytime soon in combination with the fact that um, migration has resumed and we are expecting more international students to arrive. We know that international student visa applications um, hit a record high in June. So certainly uh, in the capital cities and um, probably particularly Sydney and Melbourne, without a material increase in rental supply or, or the the number of properties available to rent, those rental price pressures um, don't look to be easing anytime soon. So is it a, a nationwide picture? I know you've published some data that says that the, uh, the average time from uh, when someone uh, puts a property up for rent on, RA, on rea.com.au to uh, the time it's taken up, I think it's down to 13 days or something like that. Um, is that, a, is that across the board nationally or are some states and areas doing better than others? 
We're seeing pretty much that across the board nationally, um, rental competition or, and rental markets are incredibly tight. Um, so in Brisbane, it's a record low 15 days that mm -hmm. properties are renting out. In, in Sydney, it's a record low 21 days. Um, and really across the other capital cities, rental days on site potentially aren't quite at their record low, uh, but they are very close to a record low. And that does mean that properties are renting out very quickly Australia-wide. When it comes to the availability of rentals um, on a national level, uh, the total supply uh, or the total availability of uh, rental listings on realestate.com.au is down 31% um, from pre-pandemic levels. In some of the capital cities, that's even more so in Adelaide that's down 38% on pre-pandemic levels in Brisbane it's more than 40% 40, 40 yeah. down on pre-pandemic levels when it comes to that stock of available rentals and that's one of the number one factors that is driving competition in the rental market so it's incredibly hard for would-be tenants at the, at the moment to find that available rental and of course a rental that's in budget given that we're seeing these price pressures Australia-wide. And you said that uh, rents have gone up on average by 8%. How does that look um, in different regions and different states? Yeah, so on a national level, um, median weekly advertised rents on realestate.com have increased 8% year on year. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the regional parts of Australia, that's certainly a little bit stronger, um, but also in the capital cities as well. So particularly um, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, um, actually Darwin as well, we're seeing that those rental price pressures are even stronger. Now, Sydney and Melbourne, we can't forget that we're also recovering um, off the fact that um, rental markets were subdued throughout the pandemic as we saw an exodus of um, international students and also um, an exodus of people from the capital city, Sydney and Melbourne, who faced um, tough lockdown restrictions throughout much of last year. Um, although we have seen that those, uh, or the rental markets in Sydney and Melbourne have certainly recovered and rental price pressures are picking up in, in Sydney and Melbourne also. And it's particularly so um, in the apartment market actually. Uh, so one of the factors there could be the fact that we have seen these strong rental price pressures. So potentially people are looking for more affordable options in the apartment market. So we see um, at realestate.com, the number of potential renters per unit listing is up more than 50% year on year in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Okay, well, maybe if you're an investor and a landlord out there and you haven't looked at your rent for a while, it might be uh, a chance to think about increasing it. But um, look, moving along, I mean, we've now had uh, five um, Reserve Bank of Australia increases. So they've increased the cash rate by uh, two and a quarter percent to 2.35 percent. They've signalled there are more to come in uh, October, November, December, maybe at a slower pace. Um, what's your take on what that means for the market? And I think your data is suggesting the market's holding up pretty well. So we have seen that the fast pace of rate rises has weighed on property prices um, around the country. So the PropTrack Home Price Index shows that um, prices fell 0.4% um, in August mm -hmm. to now sit 2.7% below their peak in March. As interest rates Which is not, That's not, not a lot, is it, um, compared to some of the other headlines I've seen? And you've got a pretty comprehensive data set uh, at REA. I mean, yeah, 2.7%, it's also not a lot in the context of what we've seen over mm. the last two years. So actually, again, if we compare to pre-pandemic levels, so March 2020, 
um, looking across the regional areas of, of Australia, home prices are still up close to 50%. And if we look across the capital cities, they're still up 26%. Um, so certainly the, the price falls that we see that we have seen at the moment, I think you do have to put them in the broader context of what we've seen over the past two years. Now, if we look at Sydney and Melbourne, so the larger, more expensive markets mm -hmm. where the um, reduction in borrowing capacity that we've seen as a result of interest rate rises and increase in mortgage servicing costs are weighing more. So both Sydney and Melbourne, the prop track home price index shows are down closer to 5% from their respective peaks. Um, whereas the smaller capitals like Brisbane and Adelaide are certainly seeing momentum remain a little bit stronger. Um, now, one of the factors there is uh, number one, the relative affordability advantage. So both those markets continue um, to continue to uh, retain an advantage with that respect mm -hmm. um, and to benefit as well from population flows. And certainly Queensland, we're seeing that um, parts of Queensland have certainly continued to benefit from population flows north that we know have been prevalent really over the last um, two years or so. But also uh, it's down to the total supply of properties available for sale in those markets is really yet to recover. Um, so in Brisbane, uh, the, the total number of properties on market available for sale um, is still down around 30% uh, from pre-pandemic levels. So that means that buyers have less options. Uh, the market's still a little bit more competitive, although it is easing off somewhat as interest rates have quickly risen. Um, but that's also supporting, um, I guess, those price falls from being quite as large as we're seeing in, say, Sydney or Melbourne. So uh, we're now into spring, of course, spring selling season, spring buying season, uh, the warm weather brings out both buyers and sellers. But, you know, you've got to say that uh, a lot of potential uh, first home buyers and maybe even investors are reading the, 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 the press and uh, hearing about the Reserve Bank uh, and further increases, interest rate increases to come. What's your take on, uh, on how the market will, will, will fare over the next uh, six months or so? Certainly as interest rates continue to rise, um, clearly the cost of servicing a mortgage is going to increase and buyers budgets are going to continue to shrink as, as maximum borrowing capacity is constrained. Um, so with the Reserve Bank having raised interest rates by more than 200 basis points so far, borrowing capacities are going to have been reduced by around 20%. And certainly if the cash rate passes 3%, borrowing maximum borrowing capacities are going to be reduced by closer to 30%. Um, so that will continue to push property prices further down in, in the period ahead. Um, but I guess heading into spring this year, the good news for buyers, certainly in Sydney and Melbourne um, and Canberra actually as well, um, is that there is a lot more choice. So we know that for much of last year, this real um, sense of urgency mm -hmm. or fear of missing out characterised the market for buyers. Um, and it, it was quite intense and very competitive. Uh, whereas now we're seeing that that uh, fear of missing out has subsided. There's a lot more um, properties on market for buyers to choose from. That certainly could create opportunity for those that are um, close to making uh, their purchasing decision. Um, for sellers, it's clearly not quite as good news. Uh, yeah. Those price expectations are going to have to reset um, a little bit lower. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, properties are still selling quicker than they were before the pandemic um, in every capital city. 
Um, and I think that's also one of the kind of key takeaways is that we have to put um, what we're seeing at the moment in the context of what we've seen really over the last two years. Uh, and particularly last year was a really exceptional period for the property market with properties selling in record uh, time. Buyer demand was sitting at record highs for much of last year, um, according to the levels of um, potential buyer interest that we track at realestate.com. And while certainly we've seen that that potential buyer interest has moderated off those exceptional levels, it does still remain above um, pre-pandemic levels and above levels that we saw throughout much of uh, 2019. So certainly there are people still out there that are looking and interested to buy. Yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly not a crisis uh, as some of the, uh, yeah, the sensational parts of the media would like to have us believe, right? It's just a little, if anything, just a bit of a pullback, uh, you know, in what's been a really strong market. Uh, maybe a bit more to come, but uh, I guess buyers need to be uh, a little bit wary, but not too wary by, by some of the statistics that you're saying. And, and if, uh, you know, rental demand is really strong, that's going to put a floor on prices. Certainly, um, the rental price pressures that we're seeing at the moment could start to encourage more people um, to buy. Um, we've also we're also seeing that there are um, a number of first home buyer incentives out there that, that mm -hmm. still remain. And whilst we've seen that investor activity has certainly pulled back as interest rates have risen, I think the flip side of that is the fact that the rental market does remain incredibly tight. And for those that aren't focusing necessarily, say, on capital growth in the period ahead, um, but potentially focusing on um, rental yields, uh, we know that um, rental price pressures and slowing price growth um, certainly is seeing rental yields recovering and rental yields were very much depressed throughout the pandemic. Um, so for investors that are switching their focus uh, there, uh, potentially the tight rental market also creates opportunity. That was uh, Eleanor Cray. She's uh, a senior economist from PropTrack, which is part of the REA group. And of course, uh, uh, just another bit of data and, and it's important insights here to think about the property market. If you uh, listen to the ABC or you read some of the nine newspapers, you wouldn't go near property, but I don't think that's the real story. Certainly, uh, with rental demand is really strong and rents are going up. Uh, this market is, uh, is not in the crisis that some might have you believe. So uh, buyers, I think it's some opportunities out there in the property market. Well, the US dollar has been on a tear and that's meant uh, downward pressure on the Aussie dollar. US dollars uh, hit an all-time high against uh, the euro, sending it below parity. Uh, Joining me now to discuss what that means uh, for the local market uh, and also what that means for interest rates, I'm joined by Michael Knox, the Chief Economist at Morgan's. Michael, welcome to the program. Well, yes, thank you. Let, let's start with the US. Let, let's start with the US dollar. It's, it's uh, at all time or close to a record high against the euro. It's, uh, it's, it's above parity. Uh, how much more strength is in the US dollar, do you think? Yes, so it's extraordinarily strong. Um, so a number of things are happening. Um, the uh, first is uh, that, of course, we are in a major energy crisis and uh, the US is a major energy supplier. Mm -hmm. um, um, the deficit for the euro are importing uh, energy, particularly Germany, which is the largest single economy, 
has widened amazingly. They've, uh, uh, they've moved from a, a significant surplus uh, in Germany to a, 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 a trading deficit, which is extraordinary for the country. And the reason for that is the increasing uh, cost of energy. And I think that that's done two things. Firstly, it's slowed the euro area economy uh, and it's, uh, and it's uh, weakened the euro uh, against the US dollar. So um, um, this is the this is real crisis, this energy crisis, and it's having major economic impacts and currency impacts as well. So um, a stronger US dollar is potentially good for bringing US inflation down, but I guess if it keeps going, we're going to see some impact in, in company profits in the US uh, uh, as their earnings offshore become less, less valuable. I mean, do you think that this is a trend that can continue um, or, you know, uh, is, is it something that at some stage is just going to make the US uh, economy relatively, uh, yeah, they'll pay the impact, the, feel the impact of such a strong currency? Well, what we see is that uh, their budget deficit, uh, the current account deficit in um, in the US has widened by uh, at least 3% of GDP uh, this year um, because of their uh, because of the, their increase in imports and the amount of domestic stimulus in the economy. But uh, as we move into um, the second half of the year, that seems to be slowing in that budget that, that current account deficit seems to be uh, narrowing. So uh, it's probably going to stabilise, but um, this, is such an, this is such an extraordinary period, it's really difficult to work out exactly where this, the point of stability is. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, it feels that it can't be far away. But right now, in terms of our models, of course, the, Aussie, the, uh, uh, the US dollar is uh, extremely overvalued in comparison to every other uh, currency uh, and uh, pretty much any, any other time period. But the problem is this is not an ordinary time period and it's, uh, and it's not comparable to, for example, 2011, uh, the period between 2008 and uh, 2011, where the US dollar was uh, uh, so much weaker and yet, and, and yet oil prices are high uh, because uh, the euro area itself was then uh, um, still a bigger energy producer than it is and it is now, so there wasn't the, the sense of shock to the euro area economy that there is now on this occasion. Let's, let's bring it back to the local market. The Aussie dollar is about 68 cents. It looks weak, but of course uh, it's, uh, it's at highs against the euro and uh, the pound sterling and also done well against the yen. In fact, most other currencies bar the US dollar. Uh, if you're an investor uh, with uh, US dollar assets, do you think this is sort of a hedging level. Where, where do you where do you sort of see the Aussie dollar going against the the US dollar? In terms of our standard model of the A dollar US dollar, we've now reached a point where, uh, 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 with commodity prices in US dollar terms so high, uh, the uh, the Aussie dollar is trading against the US dollar about two standard errors lower than uh, it normally would, but. Uh, we are in extraordinary times with this uh, enormous payments uh, uh, deficit that the Europeans have mm. uh, to import energy. And that's distorting the, uh, the US dollar euro and distorting everything else against uh, everything else against. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The Aussie dollar is uh, outperforming other currencies, it's certainly outperforming the. Euro and it's outperforming sterling, 
and it's outperforming yen because of our commodity prices so high, but still uh, we're weak against the US dollar. Do you think this is a level where the locally the Reserve Bank, you know, it's sort of below their sort of 70 to 75 cent level? They might get a little bit concerned uh, uh, about the Aussie dollar and maybe get a little more, um, you know, a bit more momentum in terms of interest rates locally? I think uh, what we've observed about the, uh, the RBA is that it's been, it's been following the Fed. Uh, it's been moving its uh, interest rates up as the Fed moves its interest rates up. And it seems to me that uh, uh, the RBA is trying to keep uh, in touch with, uh, with the Fed funds rate when it's moving the cash rate. And I think the, and I think the reason for that is that it doesn't want the um, um, Aussie dollar to be weak against the US dollar because that would generate higher import prices into uh, Australia or, uh, and uh, therefore higher imported inflation into Australia. Mm. So uh, I think therefore we've been getting uh, tighter monetary policy in Australia than most people have expected. And I think we'll continue to get tighter monetary policy in Australia than most people expect because of this attempt of the, of the um, RBA to uh, keep our interest rates in line with, uh, with the US. So assuming uh, that uh, all roads lead back to the Fed uh, and the, the Reserve Bank here locally is watching the Fed and being pressured, like not pressured, but uh, wants to keep some sort of alignment so that the currency doesn't weaken too far, uh, where do we think the US is heading in terms of, uh, of interest rates? How high will, will rates get in the US? Well, um, after the Jackson Hole meeting, there were uh, a number of um, interviews at presidents who, uh, uh, who attended. Um, it is, of course, the, it's like uh, the this National Strategy Day for the, mm -hmm. for the Fed. And uh, not only did uh, Fed presidents attend, but uh, 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 leading economists attended, but also, uh, for example, uh, heads of other institutions, for example, the, the president of the World Bank uh, attended. Uh, people were, uh, were interviewed after, uh, after the after presentations uh, were finished. And uh, at least in terms of the Fed presidents, it seems to me that uh, they were suggesting that uh, the Fed funds rate by the end of the year would be between uh, either at the high end of 3% or the low end of 4%. And when yeah. we look at that in practice, it means uh, the high end of 3% uh, of is really 385 basis points, um, which would suggest that they would continue to uh, increase rates by 50 basis points every meeting until, um, uh, until and including December. And the touch over means uh, just over uh, the, the, uh, over that, say, you know, 410 basis points. And that means that one of those meetings, one, at one of those meetings, they'd increase rates by uh, 75 basis points rather than 50. So really, uh, uh, rates are going to honour about 4%, either just below or just above. And uh, I think that... Um, uh, as the Fed does that, as the Fed walks, its, walks itself through that process of raising rates to around uh, just below or just above 4%, I think we'll be following, following the Fed and raising rates in, in the same fashion. 
uh, well, of course, we meet, we meet uh, every month and the Fed meets uh, every six weeks. So mm. the, Fed, the Fed needs to put up rates uh, by 75 basis points and we uh, put up rates uh, uh, by 50 basis points, but we get to around about the same place at around about the same time early next year. So more pain uh, for borrowers. Uh, good news, I guess, for uh, self-funded retirees and others looking at uh, term deposits and other fixed-rate investments. But for equity investors, that's um, yeah, that's probably not the news a lot of people want to hear. So uh, is is that sort of consistent with your view? Maybe we ongoing pressure on, on in the share markets as we look ahead for the next couple of months. It entirely depends upon what that effect of that Fed funds rate. Uh, increases has upon the bond market. And right now we're in a situation where in spite of everybody else's, everybody is talking about um, uh, inflation and everybody's talking about uh, how it's like the 70s. Matter of fact, the behaviour of the international bond market and the behaviour of the rate of growth of international reserves as measured by the IMF is radically different than it was in the uh, in the early 70s. In the early 70s, what was happening is you had very rapid growth um, in international reserves as because of a falling US dollar, uh, uh, because the US dollar was falling rapidly against all currencies, then money was fleeing the US and fleeing into uh, uh, other other areas, uh, it flew, uh, fleeing into Japan, fleeing into uh, uh, into the UK and, and certainly fleeing into Germany. And that was generating a, a big growth in international reserves uh, as the money went out of the US. Uh, back then, in the early 80s, uh, uh, the growth of uh, international reserves reached uh, a, a level of extraordinary high level of 88% mm -hmm. in one year in 1974. But what's happening now is the reverse is happening. Money's flowing into the US dollar because the US dollar is strong. And growth in international reserves is, uh, for the most recent quarter, is, is just a touch below zero year on year terms. So it's fallen very slightly by about 0.2 of a percent in the last year. So it's a radically different environment. And that generates uh, uh, an international uh, environment, surprisingly of deflation, and it's likely that uh, the international inflationary impulse is going to is going to reverse itself pretty rapidly between uh, next between uh, 23 and 24. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, and that entirely depends depends upon how the bond market responds to these increasing rates. So, um, if the bond market holds where it is uh, as rate short rates go up, uh, then effect upon the, uh, the equities market will be uh, surprisingly benign uh, because it's rising bond yields which have been knocking the stock market down, yeah. not so much that earnings have been so. But um, if the bond market goes up with short rates, uh, yeah, there should be more pain for the equities market uh, in the first half of next year. But we don't know yet because we don't know what, how the bond market's going to respond. Well, it looks like the bond market at the moment, at least, is responding pretty benignly to this. We've got quite a bit of an inverted curve, and but you know, we'll we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I guess your bottom line, though, is that uh, you know, short-term rates, both in the states and here, are perhaps going higher than some of the optimists are saying. And I think if I read that correctly, and maybe 
you know, the Aussie dollar uh, is still going to be under a bit of pressure if the US dollar stays strong. So, uh, but appreciating against, uh, um, you know, the European and, and some of the other currencies. Is that sort of a, a reasonable summation of where you're at at the moment? Yes, but the, 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 the upside of that is, of course, that we've got uh, incredibly high export prices for our coal and our natural gas, even though uh, there's a bit, little bit of weakening in the iron ore price. Uh, and that's generating a very, very favourable balance of trade for mm. the Australian economy. And that generates a, a good outlook for earnings of Australian companies. So um, uh, perhaps a weaker dollar relative to the US dollar in this circumstance in a situation where our exports are so strong is not such a bad result. Okay. So uh, we're the lucky country still, I think, is, is, is that yeah, sort of... The amazingly lucky country, uh, when you look at how much suffering the Europeans and other countries are going through, we are, again, uh, the amazingly lucky country. Well, on that note, we might call it, uh, we might end it there. That was Michael Knox, the Chief Economist at Morgan's. That's all from me for tonight. Don't forget you can read more about our insights at th and thoughts at switzerreport.com. See you soon.